0: Let's go down, little life out here. What the hell's going on out here? It's a lot of fun. Keep it fun. Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast as usual. I'm your host at CDDNFL on Twitter and of course follow the group at UK Packers. And we're still in the off season. Aaron Rodgers is still in the dark, as are we. About his future. Um, and there's been an awful lot of chatter going around about. Oh well it's a foregone conclusion. And we tweeted out a thing from Ross Tucker on Twitter. Just asked people what they thought about it. Because he was saying. He was saying that uh, it's a no brainer that the Packers let him go. Yeah I think it makes a whole lot of sense. But do they? Probably not. Do they let Joe Barry go? No they're not. So here we are. Um, the Super Bowl's over. What did everyone do? What did you do? Um, Usually we organise a meet up for the Super Bowl. Or send people a certain way. And the plan was to send people to the Hippodrome. But after contacting the Hippodrome, uh, they were redoing Lola's bar. And they already had half the amount of tickets sold. And they weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. So uh, that kind of torpedoed that plan uh, to send people there. So we're trying to ramp up the meetups and all that. But it might get even harder this year if the Packers have a weak schedule or a weak team in the sense that... um. You know, it's a blessing and a curse. If they if they don't put them on Sky, well, then we have to get someone to play Game Pass and then they need the license and all that type of jazz. But listen, the game itself, holy llama. And when it comes down to that holding call at the end, very reminiscent of what happened to the Packers not too long ago. You know, the fact that they were making the call and they didn't make the call. And I see these comparisons go around about Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. And in fact, I had them written down straight after the game myself, uh, you know, Pat Mahomes loses Tyree Kill, he suffers a high ankle sprain, so he's carrying a considerable injury. And despite all that, he posts career numbers, becomes the MVP and the Super Bowl MVP. I think the most impressive thing he did was beat the Madden curse. And he did it with MVS. So, if you want to make comparisons, unless you're under a rock, do you not know? But Arod loses Tay Adams at the same place the other guy lost Terry Kel, Kill and then he suffers the thumb and rib injury which is also considerable but they crash out of the playoffs and they're a contention. So I guess the question is is that is this an unfair or too simplistic comparison? Um, you'd look at the injuries to Aaron Rodgers and go well maybe they're more impactful. You would look at the lack of chemistry that he had with receivers at the beginning and but then you look at Paddy Mahomes he had high ankle sprain. Like that takes months to recover from. I don't know, I was talking to a friend about it and I'm not being an Aaron Rodgers hater. I think, you know, you're allowed to analyse, well, you're not, you're not online, but you're allowed to analyse kind of what's been going on with the Packers um, and acknowledge the fact that, you know, whether it's time to move on or not. Now, what I would say is is that Aaron Rodgers is a fantastic player. It wasn't that long ago, he was back-to-back MVP. um, But just by its very nature that after every season he has to go away and have an old man think about it, Goes to show, you know, and let that be what it is. And he wants to go off and do this darkness retreat. And I see people saying he's too much of a distraction or whatever. I, apart from being a bit of a pain in the arse uh, that he's not getting back to the Packers earlier about his future. But again, that's very simplistic as well. I mean, the, the he probably knows where the Packers stand. They know where he stands, I would imagine. Um, and they all have all the contingencies in place. They knew this when they gave him the contract. They knew who he was dealing with. And um, it's the same way as when they expected him to do superhuman stuff. You know, it's like people are like, oh, you can't be asking a guy to do that. You can. He's a he's a he's capable of back-to-back MVPs. Of course, you can put it all on his shoulders. That's what they do with Patrick Mahomes, and it works. As long as the person is willing to take on that role. And I think with the stage that Aaron Rodgers is, where it's like the guy who's been in the company for 20 years, and he rocks in late uh, with no tie, and doesn't give a damn, you know, and you look at him and go, what dude? you know? And he's like, yeah, whatever. I've been here 20 years. What are you going to do? Sack me, you know, I'll run this place. And that's that's what it's like. Um. And there's positives and there's negatives there. The positives are it's a guy who comes in. No BS gets the work done, knows exactly what he's doing. But the drawback is, you know, if you try to move the company in a more dynamic way, it's very difficult to get dinosaurs like that on board. And I guess that's what we're seeing with Aaron Rodgers. He's not a guy who's kind of willing to come in and do the voluntary stuff and have that hunger, the same as Patrick Mahomes does. Mahomes famously defends his players and doesn't throw his team under the bus. Aaron Rodgers, is that disgruntled dinosaur? He's that guy who's like, "Yeah, it's all their fault, you know, useless. Goddamn departments here. I'm doing my goddamn best here. Yeah, it's not perfect, but Jesus is close. You know, he's he's that disgruntled old guy. And, you know, maybe that's good for an organisation that doesn't expect him to do what the Packers need but I think the Packers have these young wide receivers and that's what they need Um, I won't make too big a deal of it but it's just interesting and I did mention on a prior podcast that Rogers seems to be at a stage in his career that isn't very advantageous to what the Packers are going after um, but look it might be a mixture of both in fact and this seems crazy to say with Aaron Rodgers first ballot Hall of Famer one of the best if not the best to play the game skill wise but is not an unrealistic benchmark to be comparing Rogers with Mahomes, you know, you'd look at the two of them and Rogers is obviously capable of beating out Mahomes for the MVP. He did it uh, the prior year. But when you look at it, you know, Mahomes is up and coming and he has the energy and the drive and the the youthful body. And, you know, and th- there is this talk of, well, look how many Super Bowls he has now. Is that means he's more successful than Aaron Rodgers. And Super Bowl rings, yes. You know, people are asking as well, does that make Patrick Mahomes a first time you know, first ballot Hall of Famer, probably. So if he's at the same stage as Rodgers is, at this young in his career, you know, you look at Rodgers then and go, well, there's a different, there seems to be with these quarterbacks a different kind of benchmark. But one thing that they have in common is the fact that they play with grit and determination when they're hurt because, you know, Goody came out and said that about Aaron Rodgers. I, look, I don't know what the answer is. And uh, we put it out there about you know what? What are the Packers going to do? They're going to trade him, and it's actually more swaying overwhelmingly in the favor of moving on from Rodgers. Um, I think hindsight is twenty twenty as well. Is that when you look at a back to back MVP, uh, do you get rid of him? No, like you you don't get rid of a back to back MVP. And um, like I was saying in an earlier podcast as well, if there wasn't for the Jordan Love sort of complication where his options coming up that they need to renew and Rogers's contract is ridiculously colossal and in cap hit you know if it was if that complication with Jordan Love wasn't there and I'm not saying there's nothing to do with Jordan Love but you know would we be clamouring to move on no we'd be trying to hold on to him to sort of squeeze any ounce of greatness out of him that we can and it just turns out there's that extra complication that we need to move on to which makes me look at Jalen Hurts and his style of play you know there was a couple of balls there like one of them he threw the ball into double coverage for AJ Brown um, and he came down with it and then he d- did it again he threw the ball into double coverage and it was almost picked off and you look at that decision and go what the hell what are you, what are you thinking but would you accept that style of play if, if Jordan Love was to come in you know because it's not all about precision and it's not all about ball protection sometimes you just have to give your playmakers a chance and that's what he was doing with AJ Brown and some of his wide receivers he was just banging the ball up and letting them come down with it um, and that's not something that we see from Aaron Rodgers. Um, would we see it from Love? I don't know. Maybe he's skittish and nervous. But I think to try compare Jordan Love to the exacting standards of Aaron Rodgers with his historic accuracy and his historic lack of turnovers, you know, maybe that's unrealistic as well. Is that? And it's very difficult. You know, you go from driving a, a Ferrari to another car. There's always going to be that comparison there. Of course there is. But would you accept a Jalen Hurts style of play if it wasn't perfect but brought you to a Super Bowl over Aaron Rodgers' conservative, you know, no turnovers, crazy accuracy? You know, and I think we know the answer to that, don't we? I mean, because we've had it in Green Bay for a very long time. Look at Brett Favre and what he brought us. It was this sort of exciting and in equal measure frustrating play. And I think if Jordan Love was to come in and, you know, give it a good old college try, you would accept wishy-washy, don't-know-what-we're-getting kind of play if that was enough to drag your team to the Super Bowl. And I'm not saying Jordan Love has that capability, you know, that'd be naive to say. The same way as we kind of accept that Aaron Rodgers should just bring people there. And we see some quarterbacks, some real greats of the past. They never had that expectation. And I know people are pointing fingers and saying in title town and all this type of stuff. But, you know, when you are touted as one of the best in the game, there's an expectation that you have what it takes to bring them there. And we've been deficient on defense, but there's been also some real super brain fart moments in the playoffs from Rodgers. And it's just an interesting aspect, really. You can see kind of both sides, like Mahomes more represents. Like Aaron Rodgers is Mahomes' idol, and that's the guy who he looks up to and who he copies. But um which would you want? Do you want the superhuman Mahomes? Do you want the Jalen Hurts guy who went from being one of the most inaccurate rookies ever to being where he is? And will he get them back there? Lord knows. He's an exciting player and he has tools around him. But just because it isn't the same doesn't mean it's inherently worse. Sometimes it's just different. Because at the end of the day, who won second place in the Olympics? 16 years ago. Like, no one knows. You don't know. You probably don't know who won the gold. I don't. But it's exactly that. If you, It's the Lombardi trope that apparently he tried to walk back on. You know, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. You know, so it, it's the same. So if Rogers just can't get you there no matter what, and someone else doesn't get you there no matter what, is it better to get close and be frustrated or to wallop around? I know... Look, it makes your Sunday an awful lot better if you see some nice standard to play. But we just don't know what we're going to get. I think the main thing here is is that can this team adjust if Love comes in? Because that's my concern. It's not Jordan Love, it's whether Matt LaFleur and Co can adjust. Because Devontae Adams went out the same as Tyree Kill went out and they couldn't handle it. Now I know there's loads of moving parts. There's injuries, there's schedules, there's all plethora of stuff drops morale you know it's very easy to sort of look at it and, and look at it easily but it's like when COVID-19 was happening it's like when World War 2 started you know it's very easy to put it in a history book after Hitler did this then he went here and then 1945 this is what happens you know and you get that sort of chronological and you don't have that foresight when you're when you're going into something and it's the same I think we'll only be able to write the history of what this slumping season was uh, in a couple of years' time, because we'll have most of the same players, and we'll see what works and what doesn't work, and you know what that piece was. It's very tricky. I mean, especially when the conditions keep changing. But can this team adjust to not having an Aaron Rodgers? Because they made a piss poor job of it when they lost Devontae Adams, like simply not using the running backs in the past game, not having that safety valve. Is that a Rodgers problem? Was it a Matt Lafleur problem? Is it both? probably both but I'm pretty sure if you asked Aaron Rodgers or Matt LaFleur what the issue was <laughs> well Aaron Rodgers would probably blame Matt LaFleur but no I'm being flippant now but you know they don't even know it's very hard to, to pin it on it and I mean look at past seasons too I'd love to troll through and I, I just might in the off season to see how many close games were there and if you were to sort of flip that on a dime if the Packers didn't get the bounce of the ball the rub of the green you know, well, then would they have won that game? And if so, what what does that put their record at? You know, because 13 and 3, 13 and 4 sounds really sexy. But if you have three or four games that go awry, you're hitting nine wins. And take a look at the season just gone by. So it is what it is. Anyway, um, patreon.com forward slash UK Packers. Do you know what shocked me? I was looking at it because I always had it in my mind of this sort of analogy. Um, so you know it's a non-profit here. I don't do it for money. Goddamn, you'd be shit broke if you were to do it for money. Um, and all the money that's earned goes back into doing packer stuff, right? Like buying merch and all that kind of jazz. So we cranked it open to get an all-expenses-paid trip to Lambo, and I saw something on Instagram. It was your man Shane Gillis, is his name? I think he was hired by SNL, and then there was some old podcasts came out, and he was torpedoed from. That show based on all the stuff he was saying. But he's he's still a comedian, still a stand-up comedian. They have a large following. I think his Twitter account or Instagram or whatever um, has an awful lot of followers. But I saw on one of their episodes of their podcast that just got auto-suggested, they put up a Patreon link. And I was like, that's interesting. So here's this guy, he's a here's a guy. Uh, he's a professional comedian, um, all for profit to you know, keep him afloat and all that kind of stuff. And so I went onto his Patreon just to see what the tiers were and what you get. Because we're offering the Lambo tier for five quid. And bear in mind, Patreon scalps you with fees and charges and all that kind of jazz as well. So the fiver you pay isn't the fiver we get. Let's just put it that way. Um, and for a fiver, you get an entry into the Lambo trip that's going to cost about a grand and a half, maybe two grand. So divide a fiver or less actually into two grand. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. So I went onto this guy's um, podcast. And he has forty-nine thousand plus patrons, and his tiers start at six euro up to eleven euro. So if you just extrapolate what this guy is earning, even if they're all on a, on a quid tier, no, that's forty-nine grand, and then take off the fees or whatever, the guy's earning a colossal amount of money every month. And it just goes to show, and small creators, it's very difficult, you know. Like even this week, I went and did that um, serial killer episode, the uh, Randall Woodfield. It was just a fascinating story infamous lore uh, for the packers where they drafted this serial killer um and i went and it took a couple of days to i'm not doing well with me here it took a couple of days to um put together that youtube video just with subtitles and stuff even with the help of an ai uh program generator that sucked in my audio and spat out the words which was just it was a thing to behold Uh, We just can't handle it. You know what? I will trust that AI can take over the planet if it can translate an Irish accent. Until then, I'm absolutely at ease. I'm not concerned in the slightest. You'll have that dog from Boston Dynamics doing backflips and stuff. That's great. But if you can't understand holy Jesus from an Irishman, well then, um, you know, I'm not too concerned um so yeah that took a couple of days so i thought i'd tack that on to the end of this podcast but it just kind of shows you know it depends on your audience size and your niche and all that kind of stuff but this dude has nearly fifty thousand patrons um and i think it's great value for money for a fiver to get onto that lambo tier and as i say you are not competing with fifty thousand people for this trip far from it in fact you can see the patron numbers when you go on not all of them are in the lambo tier because we have a tier for a quid as well anyway I digress. If you want to be in with a chance, it'll help us. And again, you have a massive... Like, imagine me ringing you and saying, listen, even if you're planning on going to the trip, even better, if you have the cash and you're you're saying, look, I'm going on a trip, like, get in. Get yourself a free entry. Anyway. So, look, I'm going to play this... um episode again of randy woodfield i just think it's a it's a fascinating story and also it took me a couple of days to do the youtube video and it helps a lot again for small creators if you can go across and just subscribe on youtube and give that video um, a bit of a watch because you wouldn't believe how much i hawk the subscriber numbers and you know they do it by audience retention and all that kind of stuff so if you're enjoying it um you know give us a comment give us a subscribe anyway here's the episode um about the i5 killer Randy Woodfield and hopefully there'll be a bit of news next week with the Aaron Rodgers situation and free agency and all that kind of stuff so until then Go back Go what a title of this podcast so usually I have my jingles and you know a bit of comedy a bit of lightheartedness, heartedness uh, some Packers news but this was something that I stumbled across during the week someone on Twitter I don't know who it was um, put this up and I looked at the tweet and I was like nah no, I've never heard of that that's not a thing and I looked it up And it's totally a thing. The Packers drafted one of the most notorious serial killers in US history, Randy Woodfield. So I'm going to tell the story of him uh, coming to Green Bay and what he went on to do. Now, from the outset, you know, there's conjecture. There's allegedness all over the place about when uh, Randy Woodfield's crime spree started. And there's cold cases that he's been pulled up on. And some of that stuff from doing my research for this podcast is really surprising. But one thing uh, that is for sure that I've read about is that there's two very conflicting um, opinions. One from the Packers who, you know, say they don't remember him. Um, those that do remember him and, you know, Cliff Crystal even interviewed him when he was a rookie. Um, you know, not enough that people remember him. He was drafted. He was drafted late by the Packers and he was caught in training camp. So for the Packers... He was effectively a nobody. Uh, He was gone quickly. He ended up playing locally. People say that he did that because he wanted to be recognised by the Packers again and potentially be brought back into the team. Uh, But one thing is for sure that Randy Woodfield himself certainly identifies um, with his past and his past as a Packer. I'll explain that a little bit later. But and this is chilling stuff. You know, it's one of these podcasts... After this, I'm going to go and have a shower and try wash this podcast off me because it's creepy, it's sordid and a word of warning, it's not suitable for work or to have kids. So if you've got kids in the car or you listen on the way to work or whatever, um, I'm going to spare you the really bad details and I'm going to try to use different words uh, for some crimes um, and you'll kind of get the gist. And on the outset, I have to say, I did research for this and I had timelines in and crimes, quotes, all of these things. And I came across a brilliant article on Sports Illustrated. So if you just type in Randy Woodfield, that article will come up. And then I, I, you know, filled in my info with some great content from that article. So that's definitely one to go to if you want to read more um, and you kind of want uh, more detail on it, let's say. I will try skirt around the really bad stuff, but this guy was a heinous, horrible human being. And he's still alive. Um, he's still locked up. Um, and I'm just a terrible, terrible guy. So I can't sugarcoat what he did. Uh, but certainly I can, you know, try spare the grisly details. Anyway, he became known as the I5 killer. You know, they sort of pin murders on him from he's only been convicted of one, uh, but they pin murders from anywhere between eighteen to forty-four. So we see him as kind of this guy who, you know, middle-class background, alarm bells started to ring a bit because one thing about Randy Woodfield is is that he has an insane sexual perversion. So from a very young age, he's getting brought up with indecent exposure um, and his crimes later on are of an even more heinous nature along those lines. But from a very early age, Uh, And there's no way to put it. He was exposing himself to women, the girls. And in fact, he was sent to therapy in high school. Um, And the therapist looked at it and said it was harmless. It was part of being a teenager. He was fine. Um, But we see later on that that's definitely not the case. Um, His high school team at the time kind of brushed over it um, and didn't want to talk about it. And again, he was 18. You know, his crime rap, his, you know, litany of stuff that he got done for was expunged. So when he went to community college and then he went on to play for Portland State, all of the things that he did were kind of, you know, brushed under the rug. They were expunged because he was he was overage. Went on to play for the Portland State Vikings. Apparently he was a very good wide receiver, uh, good hands. But there's quotes in the Sports Illustrated article from Ron Stratton, um, and he himself, a young guy, you know, trying to get on in the job, he was the head coach he said there was one thing that he said when scouts came up to him and that was that he was scared of being hit. So one thing that we see, you know, when an awful lot of serial killer is, is this charisma, this obsession with their looks, this narcissism, and certainly that seems to fit the bill with Randy Woodfield. Uh, he was narcissistic to a fault. Um, University described as a good-looking guy, he's a handsome fella. Um, but there was, I think the quarterback I read had said that he was more obsessed with his looks and how he looked as opposed to, you know, playing on the field and they said that that sort of you know fear of being hit certainly fit in with his sort of soft spoken uh, friendly and he was he's deemed to be quiet bit of an oddball um bit of a loner and you know it's always looked at when when these guys are brought up as a go no one ever suspected it what's weird about Randy Woodfield is is that you know for the amount of people that say he was quiet um he was unassuming there's other people on the other side that say He was kind of those things, but you could tell there was something wrong with him. You know, he was off in some way. He was a little bit odd. One of the quotes was coming up with that. He would start these sort of random, crazy conversation or statements off the wall. Um, And another thing that he kind of did was he separated himself kind of from the team and he'd always be popping in the coaches and sort of making friends with the coaches or whatever. So some people are pointing to, you know, what is that that he needed, that guidance and that camaraderie. And certainly football was seen as a reason why he didn't commit even more heinous crimes, that he would have been doing more had he not been preoccupied with football. Um, so high school, indecent exposure. He goes to community college, um, goes to Portland State. He ends up getting arrested a couple of times. Uh, one of those was for ransacking an ex-girlfriend's house. Uh, he was found not guilty by lack of evidence. That comes in later as well. And he gets, you know, a litany more of indecent exposure raps. So by all intents, it's stated that Green Bay, you know, unaware of his past, which is unlike now where, you know, they know what these guys have for breakfast, they end up drafting him in the 17th round, which is the 428th pick of the 1974 draft, and he's offered a sixteen grand contract to play for the year. Um, so to sort of put that into perspective, here's a guy, uh he went to Portland State, he was a wide receiver. He was meant to be fairly handy, but he was working in a burger chef restaurant in Oregon, where he was from, at the time that he signed. And the roommates and his mates that were interviewed for this article and other ones were saying that it was such a massive deal for him. You know, he was going around telling everybody and they felt that he was under a ton of pressure to try and make it big. So he attended minicamp in Scottsdale, Arizona under coach Dan Devine. And he said to have been you know, pretty optimistic about making the squad and we'll see this later on Um, and not to give you a spoiler alert but he's cut but he states that the reason he was cut was is because, you know, they were going more towards the run game and they didn't need his skills and there's a guy called Fred O'Claire who was interviewed for, I I believe it's Fox News a couple of years ago on the minor uh, report and he was saying that, you know, he was fairly handy, he was fairly good and he was actually really surprised that he was cut So, you know, he attends this mini camp in Scottsdale, Arizona. The team send him a first-class plane ticket with a limo pickup to bring him to training camp in St. Norbert's. And he turns down the ticket and decides to drive up instead. Now, really chillingly, you can go onto YouTube and if you type in Randy Woodfield, you'll see that uh, Fox, or I think it's Fox anyway, that news report comes up and um, Mino goes around interviewing people. And the player who... Uh, Fred Eau Claire who talks about him he turned around and said that he got contacted by cold case investigators investigating the murder of a woman in Eau Claire which would have been en route to camp and fits the timeline of when he was driving up apparently she was in I think she was going to a university in Minnesota Uh, she was hitching a lift and she was never seen again so they interviewed him to see if they could get any info to see what would have feel been involved in that so the Packers media guide quoted Woodfield as 6 feet, 170 pounds. They timed him at 4.7 in the 40. They said, cuts on a dime, has good hands and catches well in a crowd, fluid and smooth, hustles and is a good jumper. So he tells friends in Portland that he's doing well. Uh, he, avoided, he avoided earlier cuts. As I said earlier in the podcast, Cliff Crystal interviewed him uh, when he was writing for the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And a quote from wrote, uh, Woodfield after they have this scrimmage with the Bears Um, In July of '74, he says, quote, I'm pretty excited. I'm just really thankful for the opportunity. So there's various reasons why he was cut. We see that sort of it kind of comes from him is that, you know, they committed to the run game and that he wasn't needed. And then in that Sports Illustrated article, there's something alluded to that's kind of more sinister. But either way, he was cut on August 19, 1974. So Fred O'Claire, who was the guy that I mentioned earlier, he was staying with Randy Woodfield in St. Norbert's. And so he got cut just before Randy Woodfield and they bunked together. So he turned around and said to Woodfield, hey, why don't you stay with me in Oshkosh? You can play for the Manitowoc Chiefs, which were a semi-pro team, and you can stick around and play some ball. Why not? Woodfield ended up staying with him. Um, and he hoped that by being close to the Packers that they might see him and sort of re-sign him. It uh, It never happened. And Eau Claire, in that interview on YouTube, refers to him as a bit of a ladies' man, but tells a story about him stealing um, and just being generally a little bit odd. So there's no official arrest record in Wisconsin for indecent exposure. But a detective quoted, and this is his quote, he couldn't keep the thing in his pants. So even he says that there are at least 10 cases of an indecent exposure across the state. Um. But Woodfield took it really hard that he got cut, headed back to Oregon, and it's reportedly then that his killing spree began. So at the age of 24, you know, he had the opportunity to finish a physical education degree at Portland State. He decided against it and took various other jobs. He used to go down to the college, university, and work out with his old teammates. And there was a coach at the time who saw him, and he was, an, you know, seemingly friendly chap. Uh, but some of the players come up to him and said, coach, steer well clear of this fella. He's strange. Mouse Davis was his name. So he avoided him. Um, you know, despite thinking he was kind of nice initially and he looked like an athlete, he stayed away from him uh, from that point on. So early 1975 swings round, and Woodfield is arrested on a spate of sexual assaults and robberies. And police even led a sting operation where they got female officers uh, to sort of poses defenceless women and Woodfield went up to one of them with a paring knife uh, which ended up being an undercover female agent and so they nabbed him arrested him and charged him now he blamed steroid use for poor impulse control and he was sentenced to prison and he ended up serving four years um, and being released in 1979 like you know up to this point and I'll spare the details I mean these crimes are pretty alarming and pretty heinous Um. But it didn't stop when he got released. His PSU teammates of throwing him a prison release party. Again, here's a guy um, super narcissistic after he gets out of prison. He's worked on his body even more while he's in prison, has a muscular physique. So much so that he has a propensity of mailing naked pictures of himself to women. And he even sends some to Playgirl magazine And they got back to him and even said that they'd feature him in one of their magazines. However, he was never to make it because in October 1980, Woodfield murdered his first known victim, a woman by the name of Cherie Ayers. So police found her um, sexually assaulted, bludgeoned to death in their apartment with knife wounds to her neck. Woodfield had met her at a 10-year high school reunion a couple of weeks earlier and that's how they'd reconnected. And people saw him out and about, and so he was initially brought in for questioning. But lack of evidence, um, lack of reliable DNA testing, he was released. He went on to murder again two months later. He executed a friend's ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend and was questioned over those murders of Darcy Fix, who was the, the woman, and Doug Altig. But again, released due to lack of evidence. They were in their early 20s. After that in December of 1980 there was a spate of robberies by a man wearing a fake beard and some described as either athletic tape or a band-aid over his nose and only a month later in January 1981 there was a gruesome sexual assault and murder of Sherry Hull and an assault and attempted murder of Lisa Garcia Both of these women were cleaners they were working at night um, in Transamerica uh, offices in Kaiser, Oregon um, he'd intended to kill the two of them. Um, he'd shot the two of them in the back of the head after assaulting them. Um, and this was his modus operandi. He would do it execution style. So he would, most of his crimes are of initially a sexual nature. And then he will attempt to execute his victims. And he tried to do that um, to Cherie and Lisa. Cherie, unfortunately, died. Um, but Lisa Garcia survived. She played dead. He left. And then she called the cops um, and there's a story of the cop on his way to the office and he sees an athletic looking guy about a mile away. But he deems that, you know, this guy is too far away from the crime scene, didn't think anything of it. But when he heard Lisa Garcia's description, he was thinking, you know what, that that could have been him. So after, um, you know, these robberies and uh, everything else, he's nicknamed the I-5 Bandit because his crimes all along the I-5, I mean, he goes from, you know, th- the bottom of a, the bottom sort of what do we call it, the southwest of America, all the way up the I-5 to Canada. So they nicknamed the I-5 Bandit at this point because all of his crimes were located, you know, on it or two m- miles off the interstate exits all the way across the, the West Coast Highway. So in February 1981, his crimes become even more disgusting and heinous. And most of the details, I'll spare you, but it resulted in the murder of a 37-year-old woman, Donna Eckhart, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis. The crime was in between two, again, horrific um, sexual assaults in Reading and in California. Um, if you want any more details on those, again, you can read the articles, but I'm certainly going to spare you. Um, the spree continued. Um, and according to different sources, I mean, this guy racked up, up close to 44 murders, it's alleged. Um, he was eventually caught by homicide detective Dave Kominek uh, through witness descriptions. Uh, Lisa Garcia played a massive part in that to be able to identify him. But more so because he'd commit these crimes and then he would go to a pay phone within a mile or a couple of miles and make calls. So between the description and uh, between the pay phone call logs... And that sort of put him close to the crime scenes. And also his photo was picked out from a suspect lineup. And then police said, fine, we have enough for a warrant. Uh, They went to his rented accommodation where they found tape that matched what was used to tie up victims during these crimes. And also a spent bullet casing in one of his gym bags. So despite, you know, colossal amounts of evidence against Randy Woodfield, um, he still pleaded not guilty in March 1981. So although there was a litany of indictments charged to him, the state of Oregon only charged him with the murder of uh, Sherry Hull, uh, the attempted murder and sexual assault of boat women and uh, the attempted murder of Lisa Garcia. And there was a few other crimes as well that I, I won't even mention that were on his, his rap sheet. It comes up as close as 2005 where they've pinned cases, cold cases on Woodfield through the use of DNA forensics, which have gotten much better. Um, But all districts have decided not to pursue uh, further charges. You know, they put down the cost to the state, certainly at the time of these crimes, the cost um, to the state of Oregon was too high. Um, Also, you know, the DNA evidence at that time wasn't as solid as it is now. And also they don't want to traumatise the victims that are, you know, survived um, and also the families of those victims and the victims who unfortunately lost their lives uh, due to all of these Murders, but they did say, if he ever comes up for parole, uh, well then they will certainly try these cases. So they've kind of put him on notice. So you know, amounted of evidence against him, DNA evidence, he's picked out of a lineup. Lisa Garcia stood strong during the trial at the time, but the only real defense that he puts up is mistaken identity. So you know, he sits there in the witness box and um, giving evidence, and he's you know, apparently a shadow of his former self. He's not lo- looking so big and imposing the way the media have sort of made him out to be. He's very soft-spoken. um, But despite all that, he's convicted after only three and a half hours by the jury. And the sentence is 90 years uh, added on to a life sentence. He was 30 years of age when charged. So one thing allegedly remains true about Randy Woodfield, and that is that he is unremorseful um, You know, despite these cases being open and shut, that he's a murderer, he's a serial killer, he hasn't shown a shred of empathy or accountability or remorse for his crimes. There was a woman by the name of Anne Rule who wrote a book called The I-5 Killer on Woodfield at the time and she details all of these murger- murders and alleged murders and pulls up all the evidence and it's it's meant to be a really, really good account um, of Randy Woodfield and his his heinous spree. And when she brought that book out, he tried to sue her for 12 million quid. And he ended up losing that case as well. And an interesting backstory, Anne Rule, she's she's dead now. Um, but an interesting story about Anne Rule was, is that she actually worked the charity work with none other than Ted Bundy. And she's on record as saying that, you know, had she been a little bit younger had her daughters been a little bit older, that she would have seen Ted Bundy as the perfect man for her or for her daughters. So, I mean, if you want to talk about anybody who has some sort of like first-hand knowledge, she wrote a book about Ted Bundy as well. I think it's called uh, The Stranger, The Murder Beside Me or Murder Beside Me and The Stranger Beside Me, I think, if you want to look that up. So, I mean, she's came into contact with serial killers who have been touted for narcissism or good looks or charisma, which again is a real bone of contention with people to refer to these monsters as any of those things. So, Woodfield as well, I mean, you know, the Packers, he was on the... You know, he was drafted, he was given a contract, he went to training camp, and he was cut. Rightly so, the Packers, I guess, would want nothing to do with this guy. Um, But it doesn't seem that it's reciprocated because Woodfield apparently hauled around, you know, every piece of correspondence that he got from the Packers. He still apparently waxes lyrical to anybody who's going to listen to him about his time playing football and the time that he was, you know, drafted with the Packers and his time, albeit limited, in Green Bay. Um. And, you know, there's stuff in that Sports Illustrated article about how he kept the ticket stub or the, the plane ticket that they sent him to get him to Green Bay. Um, so he had that on him. It's just really sickening stuff. And at the end of the Sports Illustrated article, as the thing that really strikes me, was that Woodfield, although he clammed up, like he, he'd talk and wax lyrical about football and all of this type of stuff, but he would clam up completely when you start to get into more of his, um, I don't know... The news report called it a dark side. It's a disgusting serial killer, sociopathic, psychopathic, whatever you want to call it, side. Um, And he, he wouldn't talk about it. But he created a MySpace page in 2006. And this is how he identifies himself on that page. He said that, I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder along with many other crimes. I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer, they didn't need at the time, unquote. So again, this guy thinks that he would have made it based on merit, but only that they went a different direction with play strategy, that they didn't keep him around. So at the end of the day, the Packers cut this guy. And, you know, maybe football was his way to keep him out of this type of Disgusting behaviour that he had from high school all the way up. But I guess they don't really know when the spree started. They don't know if being a football player would have kept him out of these urges. Um, According to the articles and the news things, he still doesn't show a shred of remorse. And there was a a detective quoted that said, if you were to let him out, he would repeat offend. Um, Is that he would go back to his old ways for sure. So a really, really chilling chapter that's associated to the team that we love not in any way you know linked um that the Packers didn't know about his background or anything like that um so it's it's really odd to me that you know there's such fantastic history but then you have the likes of this story which I wasn't aware of um so again if any further reading you can just google his name and some of his um, stuff comes up there that Sports Illustrated article is absolutely fantastic if you want to check that out as well it goes into um, a lot of detail on you know what type of guy he was what association that he had with the Packers you know there was a Packer scout quoted in the article back in the day who said that he had no idea who he was and he didn't certainly didn't know he was going to be or he was linked to um all of these murders as the I-5 killer again the higher number of his of his kills his murders were up around 44 the amount of assaults that I've seen, like there's countless assaults, potentially one of the most prolific serial killers, uh, in US history, so yeah, anyway, next week, I thought I'd bring you that, because it's just, it's a weird and, crazy, fascinating um, chapter in, uh, in history, um, next week, lighter stuff, but for this week, that's it, you can get me on Twitter, at um, UK Packers, you can follow the group, at UK Packers, get into the Facebook group as well, off season trundles on, but so do the uh, podcast and the content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for following along. I um, hope you're enjoying them. Uh, do let me know. And until next week, next week, go pack, go.